Hey, this is Mark, and if you are listening, you are someone who is already plugged in or you're choosing to get plugged in, and so we want to thank you off the top. Let's just say off rip, off top. You know how we do. I want to thank you for supporting us. Please listen and share and discuss. I also want to share the origins of the show with you. A lot of this comes from me as a child listening to Jesse Jackson's Operation Push on Saturday mornings with my parents or Lou Palmer's Talking Drums of Africa commentary again with my parents. So don't just share it with your friends, share it with your children, grandchildren and the like. It's important. Also subscribe, leave a comment and so on. I also want to tell you how you can support the show. Buy me a cup of coffee or buymeacoffee.com is a place to go. Buymeacoffee.com, as spelled as it sounds, backslash parlay in all blue. Buymeacoffee.com, backslash parlay in all blue. You can go there and support the show. We appreciate it. If we don't buy coffee with your support, we will buy books, and we thank you in advance. This week on the Parlay in All Blue, we are honored to have Mr. Charlie Cobb. We are honored because Charlie Cobb is someone who is truly worthy of the phrase, thank you for your service. Mr. Cobb was a field secretary for the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, also known as SNCC, from 1962 to 1967. He was working in the Mississippi Delta during that time doing voters registration, freedom schools, and also helping to build out the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party. All of that is super important to the freedom struggle and to civil rights. He is someone who did the day-to-day work of organizing in the Mississippi Delta. He was there with Mrs. Fannie Lou Mahamer when she went to register to vote for the first time. He wrote the proposal for the Mississippi Freedom Schools during Freedom Summer in 1964. Again, this is someone who is worthy of the phrase, thank you for your service. He is also the founder of the National Association of Black Journalists. He's also the founder of AllAfrica.com where you can find news and reporting on the continent of Africa. He's also been a correspondent for NPR and National Geographic. He's still active in organizing and advising today's activists on the important work of not just protesting, but organizing. We spent some time talking about all of these things, and we take a fair amount of time to discuss his book. This nonviolent stuff will get you killed How Guns Made the Civil Rights Movement Possible. Again, you are not going to want to miss one minute of this episode. Like it, share it, discuss it with others, and also teach your kids, grandkids, anyone who doesn't know about SNCC and about Charlie Cobb and Mrs. Fannie Lou Hamer and others. Thank you again. We so appreciate you. Welcome to the Parlay in All Blue. Mr. Charlie Cobb, welcome to the Parlay in All Blue. How are you? I'm fine and happy to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Well, you know what? Thank you for accepting the invitation uh, because this is a really special 
interview for us. And a big part of what led me to you was we did an episode a few weeks back on the Black Panthers. And there's a professor from Arizona State who was the the guest who had written a book about the making of the Panthers and all of these things. And as he was talking, as I read his book, I came across a name, Robert Williams, in the Uh NAACP in North Carolina. And I tell you that I was raised in a family that is supposed to, you're supposed to know Black history. You're supposed to know our history. And I'd never heard the name. It was like- Really? I'm surprised. Right. No. And then he said, by the way, you should check out this book. Uh, This nonviolent stuff will get you killed by Charlie Cobb. And I said, I know, I don't know Mr. Cobb. I know Mr. Cobb from documentaries and other things, but I didn't, I didn't know about this book. So. (laughs) Yeah. I spent a fair amount of time on Robert Williams in one of the chapters. Yeah. Yeah. You spent a fair amount of time. So I want to get into the book this nonviolent stuff will get you killed, how guns made the civil rights movement possible. But I want to start with a passage in the introduction that you wrote. My goal has been to help understand ourselves as a nation, cutting through the platitudes and romance of the civil rights movement, as well as persistent stereotypes about Black people. Before I get into it, and I know that That'll take the first five hours. (laughs) Right, right, right. But I know that SNCC, Ella Baker, strong people don't need strong leaders. I know that. But I do want to say that, and I know this isn't about platitudes or romancing the freedom movements, but I want to say off the top, thank you for your service uh, to to Black people and to the nation and making it a more perfect union. I don't think, I can't start the interview without saying that as someone who was there and on the ground. Well, thank you for those comments. (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. No, thank you. And then the other thing you say shortly after that is this book is neither memoir nor autobiography, but it is your story. So I kind of want to start there that you were a, a SNCC field secretary, I think from 1962 to 67. Right. How did you, as a field secretary in Mississippi, in the Delta, I want to say, and how did you end up with SNCC and how did you end up in Mississippi? Well, in telling that story, there's also embedded in that story an important lesson if you want to really understand Black struggle, not only in the 1960s when I was involved, but throughout the whole stream of history of Black struggle. As a Howard University student, I was involved with the sit-ins uh, because everything around Washington, D.C. was segregated in Maryland, Virginia. And even Washington, D.C. had only really begun to segregate, desegregate in 1953. So I entered Howard in 1961. So it was only a few years. And I'm from D.C. And my mother is from D.C. And my grandmother and her husband had come to D.C. from the Mississippi Delta at the beginning of the 20th century. So it's my hometown. And I became involved in in the sit-ins. And because I was involved with the sit-ins against segregation and public accommodations, uh, CORE, the Congress of Racial Equality, invited me to a workshop for student activists in Houston, Texas. 
and gave you money for this bus ticket because you didn't fly anywhere back in those days. And right, my right. attitude was, well, it's a good time. It's a way to see the whole South. I bought this bus ticket from D.C., Virginia, Carolinas, uh, Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, and on into Houston, Texas. And I got off the bus in Mississippi because the students were sitting in. And my thinking was, I was 19 years old. Uh, my thinking was, it's one thing for me to be sitting in in Maryland and Virginia. It's something qualitatively different to be sitting in in Mississippi. For my generation, at least, Mississippi was wholly identified with the murder of Emmett Till. We had all seen the picture in the Jet magazine. Our parents were talking about it. So that's what Mississippi was to us, the worst place in the universe for black people. So I wanted to meet these students who were sitting in in this place. Like I said, I thought it was different than me sitting in. And I made my way to their headquarters. And there were a, a group of student activists there. Among them was... Um, Lawrence Giot, who had just graduated from Tulu College and was getting ready to go up into the Delta where SNCC was beginning and begun its first voter registration project in Greenwood, Mississippi. Uh, Dory Ladner, another legendary figure in Mississippi's movement. Uh, Jesse Harris, who, a native, and these are all native Mississippians who had been on the Freedom Rides. Uh, and I'm, so I'm meeting this handful of, of students. And when I say, tell them, like I'm telling you, I'm on the way to Texas for this workshop for activists and the sit-in movement. Lawrence Giat, uh, and Giat was a big guy. I mean, he was like six feet, a couple hundred pounds. And he hovers over me, looking at me and speaking with complete disdain. And he <laughs> says, I never will forget the word. You never forget words in these moments. He says, you're going to Texas for a workshop on civil rights? What's the point of doing that when you're standing right here in Mississippi? And then Jesse Harris chimes in, yeah, man, we're, uh, you're in the war zone here. And I'm getting the message. The message coming through to me is they challenge me. They're challenging me. They're saying, well, yeah, you can go to Texas and chatter about civil rights if you want. But if you're serious, You'll join us here in Mississippi and help us with this fight. We're launching. Uh, and, that, and that's the really important lesson in this exchange is that as much as the movement, was, and this is historically true, you know, the lesson in all of this is that as much as the, uh, black people challenge segregation, white supremacy, et cetera, et cetera, the really more important thing that's going on, if you look at black struggle, is the challenges that black people made to one another within the black community. Because that's what Giad and Jesse and Dorian and them are doing. They're challenging me. You know, if you're serious, there's a fight we're waging here. And you don't need to go to Houston, Texas right. to, to, to chatter. And I did. I, got, I stayed. I got, it wasn't in my initial plans, but I wound up staying. It was summertime, after all. It was the summer of 1962, I think. Right. And so they were getting ready to go up into the Delta to start a second project in Sunflower County, which, uh, Delta County. And I got in the car with them. And, I, and I, my thinking was, 
that, well, I don't have to go to some workshop for for sit-in activists. I got the whole summer. I don't have any classes, da-da-da-da. And uh, so I did. I wound up, and I and I tell some of the story in the book, but yeah. but to compress the story, suffice to say, a lot of stuff happened to me that summer. Partly because the state was tense. James Meredith had just enrolled in Ole Miss, and, and it was, the whole state was being whipped into an anti-black fury by the newspapers and the politicians. And so there's a lot going on, and, and just in that summer. I wound up getting shot at. I wound up getting told at this gunpoint to get out of town in Rollville, Mississippi. I, I wound up in jail. Uh, there's a whole lot of stuff going on. And plus, people were putting their own lives at risk, Mississippians, because here I am asking them to register to vote. So at the end of the summer, I realized, because it's the way I think, I couldn't just say, well, folks, it's been interesting. Uh, but I got I got I got to register for classes, and so I I'm just not made up that way. And I knew at the end of the summer I couldn't do that after asking, basically asking people to put their lives at risk doing what I was asking them to do. Right. And the people I was working with, Charles McLaurin, Landon McNair. So I stayed, and and I wound up staying for almost five years. Before I felt it was okay to leave uh, Mississippi. Well, well, listen, hey, that that first off, uh, I've seen pictures of Lawrence Giot. He is he he was a big man, and I could imagine him standing over you. That that would be quite intimidating. And I also know that you know he's a Tougaloo student, and the Tougaloo yeah, student yeah, just graduated from Tougaloo. Yeah, yeah, very serious in in terms of activism. You end up in the Delta as a part of the freedom movement. There's voters registration going on there. And you talked about the sit-ins and the freedom rides happened or were happening. But there's something that I want to, you know, sort of highlight as we go along here. And it's this idea that I think is missing for people who look at the civil rights movement is around organizing and organizations. At, at, you know, we have this really romantic vision of, you know, Dr. King and others making big speeches, but there was a lot of organizing and a lot of people doing that. So can you help me with just a couple yeah, of I things? Yeah, I can speak to that. I talk about it a lot, you know. You talk about it a lot. So for for the audience and, and for me, there's a couple of Things that I'd just like to understand with the various organizations that were there under COFO, that the banner of COFO, SNCC, CORE, NAACP, SELC, I'm assuming. What were the differences between sort of, let's say, SNCC and SELC in terms of philosophy, or in terms of freedom movements and civil rights? The basic difference between SELC and CORE as it worked uh, in the deep South was the organizing issue. The, the, the notion of the NAACP was that there really were two NAACPs. One was the New York people. This is Roy Wilkins, the executive director, uh, Gloucester Kurt, who I think was in charge of NAACP branches and whatnot. And the attitude of the decision makers for the NAACP in New York was that 
places like Mississippi were too dangerous to work in and that you couldn't get any enough meaningful results for the time and money you put into a place like Mississippi. This was Megar Ever's great frustration. And it was partly what drove him to work more closely with Schnick and Core. SELC was a little different in the sense that this is an organization basically fairly hierarchical. And although they had a couple of people whom I respect greatly, and Nell Ponder, who's passed away, now comes immediately to mind. They were like Baptist preachers. <laughs> they, they didn't dig into communities at the grassroots. They preached. Mm-hmm. And they wore mohair suits, and white shirts, and ties, and their shoes were shiny. That was their style. And, and we understood it. If you're black and grew up in any kind of black community, you know preachers like yeah. this. And, right. and, and so while we weren't hostile, I think his, historians misinterpret the relationship between SNCC and SCLC because we were not hostile for one another. We were just different. Uh, we, you know, we hadn't been thinking about organizing until Miss Baker put it on the table, you know, at our very first conference. She was the one who said, what you have to do is learn how to listen to people, pay attention to what people are saying, dig down at the grassroots, and you'll find leadership and strength that you didn't even know was there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the thing about Miss Baker was because she was the NAACP's director of branches in the 1940s, she had a whole network across the South. So you could go into a community where there was an NACP group, even if it was sort of underground, because sometimes these NACP groups were like underground organizations. But if you let them know that Miss Baker sent you, you had credentials, <laughs> at least insofar as civil rights struggle was. And Miss Baker was the one who, all the people who went from Amzie Moore, who, if I had to point to a single person who was responsible for SNCC beginning to work in Mississippi, it's Amzie Moore. And Amzie Moore was one of Miss Baker's people. Uh-huh. And because Miss Baker sent Bob Moses, who would become SNCC's project director in Mississippi, to Amzie Moore. And it was AMSI because we weren't thinking about voter registration. Remember, we come out of the sit-in movement and the freedom rides and all that. And we weren't thinking about voter registration. It was AMSI Moore who came to SNCC's second Congress and fifth conference, in fact, put voter registration on the table. And it had lukewarm interest. And I think I put in the book the, the letter or part of the letter that was written calling together this conference. Voter registration isn't mentioned at all. And a lot of people, SNCC had a whole year-long debate about this, voter registration. Well, what does that mean, voter registration? We're going to become Kennedyites? We're going to sell out to the Democratic Party? (laughs) You know, a lot of this I hear among today's young activists. Um, And what Ms. Baker knew that we didn't know, if you went to these little towns and these rural counties in the Black Belt talking about voter registration, that was the same thing as walking into a white-owned restaurant and seeking service. She knew that voter registration, and it didn't take us long to discover this easy because the violence just 
I still think people today don't understand how violent the Black Belt South was back in uh, those days. And one final point is if you look at black history, organizing is really what defines struggle since the earliest days of the black presence in the United States. After all, I mean, blacks weren't mobilizing protest marches to march on auction blocks, slave auction blocks. And they, they weren't having sit-ins at the plantation manor dining room table seeking a seat at the table. What were they doing? Well, they were organizing. What? Well, escape, mm-hmm. revolt, yep. sabotage, works. There's a whole history of a black organizing tradition. Uh, to engage in struggle, which Schnick in the 1960s was just the latest manifestation of, really. You know, because you, you, you can't go back to a time when there wasn't. Yeah, I, I am so glad you said that because I think that really gets lost. And I think that we have also in the sort of Mickey Mouse telling of American history, of Black history, sort of there was slavery and then, you know, there was Rosa Parks yeah. and then Barack Obama was president and just sort of, and this, yeah, I know. In there. yeah. You know, we end up not talking about Denmark Vesey or the German coast rebellion or Nat Turner's rebellion. And we don't talk about even in what, so even when we romanticize places like Tulsa and black wall street and Wilmington, we leave out the fact that somebody had to organize and come together in their structures and, and, and we leave out, we don't talk about, you know, there's a whole tradition. I'm thinking about it a lot because I live in Florida, mm-hmm. uh, which has yes. launched a major assault on education. Oh. And I'm thinking about the, I've been thinking a lot about the tradition of black organized schools in the South. You know, it was illegal to have schools for black people, to teach black people to read and write as, as, as Frederick Douglass put it, you know, a slave who can read and write, I'm paraphrasing Frederick Douglass, but a slave who can read and write is going to be a dissatisfied slave. Oh, yeah. And, and so, so there's a whole, you know, if you look at black history, a lot of it is about not just slave revolt, but schools and churches and, and all kinds of, of, of things that black people engage in often secretly, even the NAACP back in the day. I mean, I rem- I can remember being in, in this little town in Sharkey County, Mississippi, and, and uh, working, and this guy comes up to me. He, he as People used to call us the Freedom Riders if they knew who we were. And mm-hmm. he, he pulled me aside and he lifted his shirt and he had this card struck in his waistband, and it was an NAACP membership card. And he said, you see, I'm a member of the NAACP, too. And he stuck it back uh, in his waistband. So there's a lot of, you know, organized. So when I started this book you cited, uh, I was talking with Julian Bond about what I intended to do. I hadn't begun to write it yet or even research it. And, and Julian made the point, which I've never forgotten. He says, you know, the way the public thinks about the movement can be boiled down into roughly three sentences. Uh, you know, you know, Rosa sat down, Martin stood up, 
Then the white folks saw the light and saved the day. Right. <laughs> Later, if I had to add to, to Julian's Julian's com- comment, I would then add a fourth sentence and say, and then Stokely Carmichael shouted out black power and destroyed right. the good movement of love and violent, nonviolence uh, with a call to violence. I mean, you know, that's, you know, mass protests in public spaces, charismatic leaders and all of that is the way the movement has been distorted. And a lot of the people who made the movement, therefore, have vanished from the historiography. I mean, people like me know who made the movement. I know Mississippi, and I have friends who worked in Alabama, Charlie Sherrod and them in southwest Georgia. But all those people and and their story, and this book partly tries to tell some of their stories, but, you know, all of that has really vanished from the historiography. Well, a couple of things there. That's the whole purpose of this show. And that's why we're so glad that we have you so that it doesn't vanish. One thing I want to go back to, as you said, Miss Ella Baker talked about listening and then understanding and knowing what to do next and you and leaders will emerge. If we go back to you getting to Jackson and going to the deck Delta with in Ruleville, you were with, I want to say, Mrs. Fannie Lou Hamer and others when they attempted to register to vote for the first time. Right, in, in Indianola, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's an amazing thing. We didn't, you know, Mrs. Hamer, had, she was a sharecropper. She had come to a mass meeting we had organized at Mount Galilee Missionary Baptist Church. And we didn't pay particular attention to her. But, you know, from Ruleville, to the, you had to go to the county seat in Indianola to register to vote. Now, Indianola was the birthplace of the White Citizens Council and known as a violent, vicious town. But we got this old bus that used to be used to haul uh, field workers to the cotton fields. To, we brought, I think, 17 or 18 people down Indian though. Well, everybody's scared on the bus uh, because they knew exactly what they were headed into in this town. And we didn't have anything to offer them. Nothing. I mean, we couldn't say we'll get the federal government involved. We couldn't say we'll defend you if you're attacked. There was nothing, really, uh, that we had to offer people back and that's when Mrs. Hamer appears because she begins singing from the back of them from where she's seated. And just through the power of her voice, she's able to shore up people yeah. uh, and, yeah. and just give them enough strength to go on into any, you know, and go to the county courthouse with us. And then what happens is courthouse, the circuit clerk where he had to go, he shuts down his office. So now, it's afternoon, late afternoon, and and now people are just milling about, worried now because it's getting you headed towards dark. Mm -hmm. And uh, you don't want to be caught (laughs) on these little rural roads (laughs) knowing you're identified with civil rights. as the sun goes down, and the bus driver gets arrested. 
he gets arrested for, according to the policeman who arrested him, of driving a bus of the wrong color. He we we the bus was a raggedy old school bus, and like school buses, it was yellow, orange, and black, and so forth. But it was I don't know when the last time it hauled students to school. It was really used to haul workers to the cotton field. But he the driver gets arrested. And once again, people are terrified now. They have no way to get back to Ruleville, which is 17 miles away. Yeah. And uh, uh, Mrs. Hamer begins singing again. And she's singing now these freedom songs. Ain't going to let nobody turn me around, stuff like that. Woke up this morning with my mind stayed on freedom. And yes, again. Through the power of her voice, she like reinforces people so people meet. And they decide to form a delegation to go talk to the policeman who has arrested the bus driver. This is an amazing thing in 1962 on a rural Mississippi community. And they form this little delegation. They want to know what they can do, what they have to do to get the bus driver released so he can get the people back home. And... uh, they asked this cop, and he says the fine is, again, I think the fine was $100. Mm. Well, there wasn't $100 in the pocket. Everybody combined. I think we, we, we counted out the money, and it was about 42 or $43 that everybody, including the SNCC people, had. So this delegation, again, this is quite amazing in 1962 in Mississippi, and the state being whipped up and furious, anti-black sentiment. Uh, they say, and they had, I forget who the spokesman was, because it wasn't a SNCC person, it's the local people. And they say, well, we've only got $42. And, and <laughs> if that's not acceptable, you might as well take us all to jail, which again is an amazing thing for people in rural Mississippi to be telling some policemen. Well, he takes the $42 and releases the drug. Now, I have no idea, although I have my own suspicions about right. whether or not that $42 <laughs> wound up in the county treasury. I doubt <laughs> if it did. This is how Mrs. <laughs> this is how Mrs. Hamer emerges. <laughs> you know, and this is confirms what Miss Baker had been talking to us about. That if you listen and pay attention to these communities, you will find strength in all these unexpected places from these unexpected people that you don't usually look to for strength and leadership. Mrs. Hamer is a perfect example of that. Yeah. And then she just kind of stayed with us. She became the oldest SNCC field secretary on the SNCC payroll because she was 40 some odd years old. Right. <laughs> and, and most of you all were. In your 20s, they're teenagers, right? I was 19. I was 19 when this happened. I hadn't reached my 20th birthday yet. But everybody was between the ages of 18. And Bob Moses was the old person in the SNCC group because he was 26. Right. But (laughs) most of us were anywhere between 18 and 22 years old. So, you know, something that came across in your book is that with you all and the core people living with families there in the Delta, 
and in Southwest Mississippi and in Louisiana and, and in, in Lowndes County and, and the danger of going back and forth and just the danger of just sort of everyday life. Uh, Isabel Wilkerson's book, Cast, really mm-hmm. speaks, Cast and Warmth of Other Suns really mm-hmm. speaks to the random violence for violations of the, of just the yeah. cold of, you know, looking at people, what have you, just how violent it was. And I am going to just go through some, and it took me aback in listening to this. And so I went to Jackson State. So a lot of people who listen to I the show, sure. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> a lot of people who listen to the show are, you know, people that I went to school with and maybe their children or grandchildren or, or what have you. So I'm going to say some of these names and they're, and I'm going to, I'm going to say that I'm not saying it for, uh, I'm I'm warning because some of the people that I know know these names personally. So nationally, mm-hmm. we know about the murder of Megar Evers. But you point out, mm-hmm. and it's all in sort of a couple of pages there, and it just really took me aback. Lamar Smith in Brookhaven in 1955 also killed Reverend George Lee. Yes, Reverend George Lee in Belzoni. 1961, mm-hmm. Vernon Dahmer, 1966 in Hattiesburg, Wurlis Jackson in Natchez in 1967. A lot of my good friends are from Natchez and they know Wurlis Jackson and his family well, like hand to hand, enormous friends. But just before Wurlis Jackson, mm-hmm. George Metcalf attempted murder, blown up. He didn't die then. But and um, one that doesn't get told is as much as. Benjamin Brown, who's a Jackson State student who was killed in 1967 in Jackson. I say all of that to say is is that um, Mississippi was a very violent place. And this only accounts for people who were activists. This is not just um, mm-hmm. just sort of random right. violence. So your book is about how guns made the civil rights movement possible, which is something that most people don't hear Talk about the necessity of self-defense and um, and and in armed self-defense and guns in organizing. Why was that uh, a component? Why was that? Why did I that, say why? I say this to people: Look, guns, self-defense—that's a human thing, not a black thing. Uh, uh, you know, the instinct of people. I don't care. I've traveled all over the world. I, I was a writer for National Geographic magazine for 20 years. Uh, you know, people will always do the best they can to defend their friends, family, and community. I don't know how many communities I've been in where that hasn't been true. In the South, guns are part of the culture. It doesn't matter, black or white. They're part of the culture. You can go down to the hardware store and buy some guns and bullets. Uh, people use guns. I rank Self-defense is the third reason people kept guns, firstly. Uh, Firstly, they kept guns because they were poor, and they used guns to put food on the table. I know a lot of the people I stayed with, like the first couple I stayed with, Joe and Rebecca McDonald, uh, Mr. McDonald, Mr. Joe, as we call it, went out every morning to shoot something. He had three of us living in his house, he and his wife, and that's how they put food on the table. And they did it before we lived with them, and they did it while we lived with them. Secondly, people use guns to to keep varmints 
out of the gardens they often had. These are rats and, and, and things like that, chewed up the carrots or the cabbage or the greens or whatever. And thirdly, they used guns for self-defense. The title of this book itself, This Nonviolent Stuff Will Get You Killed, comes from a farmer, Hartman Turnbull, legendary figure in the movement who has vanished from the history of right. Mississippi. But when he met Martin Luther King in 1964, Mr. Turnbull, middle-aged man, who was never known to bite his tongue after the courtesies of introduction, looked at Reverend King and said, Reverend King, this nonviolent stuff ain't no good. It'll get you killed. And sadly, he was right. Reverend King is murdered. Uh, but uh, that was too long for a title for a book. So I just no, shortened I it. <laughs> so this nonviolent stuff will get you killed. But Mr. Turnbull, is who I have to give the props to for mm -hmm. the title. And it reflects a kind of attitude. And there's not much contradiction between self-defense and nonviolence. I don't know how many times I've sat in the living room with men and women uh, who are talking about being a part of the nonviolent movement while they're cleaning their guns. You know, this is a cultural thing. Even Mississippi, when it tried to, it tried to pass a gun control in the 50s, because they said these black people, the man who introduced the legislation said, and the Mississippi state legislature said, you know, we got to register these guns because these people are not our friends and we need to keep track of it. Well, it never got out of committee. Yeah. Uh, guns. I tell the story of, of my own experience after the Night Rider shot up Grooveville and how the mayor had me arrested and, and confiscated the gun of the man I was staying with who went down and got it back. This mm -hmm. is a deep part of Southern culture. I, 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 I'm not sure. I think it's a part of urban culture today in a very different kind of way yeah, in, a different in Chicago. Yeah. And, in a way, but in in the South, certainly in the 1960s, if you lived in the Black Belt, and I think people do not understand that today, how violent the Black Belt was. They could kill you for any reason they wanted to and get away with it, which is the case in most famously with Mickey Schwerner, James Cheney, and Andy Goodman when they finally brought the killer, Cecil Price, who was the deputy uh, sheriff to trial, there's a very famous photograph of them on trial. And while they're on trial, they're on trial for murder. They're eating popcorn at the table and laughing and joking with them because they knew they would get away with Way killing with those guys. You know, so I think people today don't understand how violent it was and this in in the state and a lot of men crazy niggas they were called mm -hmm. uh, and women I remember being with Miss JD Pruer in Tallahatchie County when she's making Molotov cocktails in her sink to throw at the clansmen who are about to <laughs> attack her farm. I think people don't understand that they're and it's a human it's not a black thing really. It's a human thing. It's a human thing, but it, and it's also so. I think it's really important what you're saying because I think we have this story, and I think it's really important for 
black people and young black people to understand that we are not uh, a people of passivity, that a lot of this violence is state violence and it's backed up that way. And we, when we fought for our freedom, but I do want to make a distinction because what you're talking about is, is that people defending themselves against night riders and defending, being able yeah. to defend themselves against intruders and people mistake that nonviolence of us like going to the courthouse as a tactic to register to vote is very different than self-defending oneself and property. Yeah. And, it, and it's funny. Even then, I, I remember uh, uh, Unita Blackwell, another legendary figure in, in Mississippi's movement, Missaquina uh, mm-hmm. County, Myersville, Mississippi, was the only town in the county. He ultimately becomes the mayor of uh, Myersville. And I remember talking with her husband one day because Unita was really the leader of of the movement. And it occurred to me one afternoon that I hadn't seen her husband go down to try and register to vote. So I asked him, I said, well, how come you haven't gone down to try and, and, and register to vote? And he said, look, Charlie, if I go down to that courthouse, I'm not going down without my pistol. If I go down there, and I'll, I'll clean up his language a little bit, and some of these white people mess with me, I'm going to shoot them. <laughs> and he said, I know that's going to cause you some problems. So it's best I just not go down. Yet I don't doubt that he felt that he was a part of this movement. This is, a, this is an interesting way. People have a way, very few of the people, even Mrs. Hamer, I mean, one of the things they don't, quote, they don't use from Mrs. Hamer is she, she said, I keep a shotgun in every corner of my bedroom. The first cracker tries to throw some dynamite on my front porch. Won't write his mama again. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> this is like a cultural thing. This is the South. I, I think it's not so much in the North, but in the South, and particularly in the rural South, self-defense is considered ordinary, whether you're fending off the Ku Klux Klan or the revenueers coming to smash up your <laughs> bootleg whiskey. Yeah, yeah, no, it's 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 a natural output of it. Mr. Cobb, talk a little bit about the as it relates to just sort of the assertiveness and also just just protecting oneself. What was the what affected World War II and Korea the 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 men who served there in those wars have on both the civil rights movement, freedom movement, and the idea of um, self-defense. I I spend a lot of time in the book mm-hmm. with World War One and World War Two veterans. Mm-hmm. A lot of time, I think, certainly in the twentieth century, World War Two in particular changed the climate of the South. And I kind of give a salute to these these guys. They had fought. Overseas, I try and tell their story. I mean, they're fighting. If you look at the, a lot of the leadership in the Southern Freedom Movement, they're World War II veterans. Yeah. By the time we're around, World War One veterans are kind of elderly, and so they're not as active as World War. II. If you look at the leadership, Amzie Moore, 
Cleveland, Mississippi, you brought SNCC into, in, into Mississippi, you know, and, and um, others. Aaron Henry, who was the state president of the NACP and later the head of COFO as well, World War II veterans. I think they came back from that war not really prepared to accept the rules of white supremacy. And they took the lead uh, of the movement. Now, awful things happened to some of them. Uh, I was just looking at a documentary about, I can't think of his name now, uh, this returning GI in the 1940s who was blinded by a beating uh, 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 by a policeman. He was in uniform. Yeah, yeah, Hosea Williams, who was a leader of SELC, used to talk about what happened to him. He got beaten, too, coming back in uniform from World War II. But still, they they really did change the climate. They enabled us, I think, as, as the generation after them mm-hmm. to engage in meaningful struggle. And they protected us, to tell you the truth. I mean, and they, uh, I've had guys say, I'm not going to let these white people kill you, Charlie, because <laughs> I didn't know nothing. <laughs> and uh, so there's a whole story to tell about them. I tell some of it in the, in the book about why I think they, in particular, uh, changed the climate of the South and enabled us emerging in the late 1950s and 1960s to to really not just engage in struggle but survive. Yeah, and and so how would they they do that? Would they have? I mean, protecting you? Well, like- they protected us with guns. Firstly, that has to be said. They yeah. protected us because they set an example in these. Amzie Moore, for instance. Amzie was 49, I guess, when we met him. Amzie was the only black man in the Delta that had a gas station. And he had a little cafe with the gas station. And he had bathrooms. Amzie refused to put up white, black signs, colored Mm -hmm. (laughs) white signs. Anybody could walk into his restaurant, his little cafe, and sit wherever they wanted to. Anybody could walk in to use his bathroom. There was no white, black, or white colored sign. I mean, they established the same thing. Aaron Henry was the same way. He was the president of COFO. All the Megar Evers was another World War II veteran. A lot of them made their way into an organization in Mississippi. I know Mississippi the best, but I'm sure Something similar is unfolding in Alabama and Georgia and whatnot. But uh, a lot of these veterans uh, formed Progressive Voters League to, to campaign for. And then there was a big organization in Mississippi called the Regional Council of Negro Leadership. A lot of World War II veterans in that mega among them. Amzi, another one. And uh, they fought for economic opportunities. Mm-hmm. They were not at all interested in desegregation. <laughs> about eating in a white person's restaurant. They wanted economic opportunities. uh, And they fought for it. And they had these huge rallies in the early. When I say huge, I mean 10,000, 15,000 people Mm. at rallies. 
uh, Charlie Diggs, a congressman from Chicago, spoke at these rallies. Mahalia Jackson sang at these They had these huge rallies in the Mississippi. What changed the climate from the white point of view is that they were, you know, okay, and then it was the 1954 Supreme Court decision that galvanized white people. And you yep. see a resurgence of the Ku Klux Klan. You see a surge of white violence directed at black leadership, uh, assassinations and church bombings and home bombings. You see all of this begins to occur after the formation of the White Citizens Council in 1955 or 54, 1955, 1956. And that begins to shatter. And it was violence. Mm Mm-hmm. It did that, and and what the white people had that black people didn't have was, of course, the support of the entire state structure. So you weren't going to go to jail if you killed a black person. You know, you weren't going to go to jail if you bombed a, a church or, or something uh, like. You just weren't going to do. I I still think people don't understand the nature of violence back in those days. Yeah, the, the violence violence in terms of uh, paramilitary groups, whether it's the Red Shirts and the White League and Reconstruction, yeah. Night Riders before that and Night Riders after that, and then the Ku Klux Klan. And then you're talking also the sheriff, the state trooper. The yeah, they all worked hand in hand. I mean, you know, down in Amit County where, where SNCC first began work in southwest Mississippi, there were groups that considered the Ku Klux Klan too liberal. You know, not hard enough on the Association for the Preservation of the White Race comes to mind. Uh, You know, they fought the Klan and they left (laughs) it. Right. Wow. That's 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 a lot. But but let me let me say this. So in that in the context of that, who are the uh, deacons of defense? Well, the deacons, they're interesting. Uh, Of course, the deacons formed in Louisiana. And they formed initially to protect the core workers. The core core had a much stricter policy about nonviolence than SNCC ever had. I mean, SNCC never really elaborated on nonviolence. It was not really much of of our discussion. But core had a really structured uh, uh, approach to nonviolence. Well, and they began. They were working in um, up north, Louisiana, Jonesboro, mm-hmm. Louisiana. Um, Paper mill town, and uh, and the Klan was just you know harassing and attacking them. And these guys, who were uh, Korean War and World War Two veterans, decided, oh no, we're not going to let these kids because they were just like this, just like the SNCC. My brother-in-law was a part of the core group that went to to Louisiana, and, and they started formed a group, and I think incorporated their group, uh, although not as a self-defense. It's the, the fact that they engage in self-defense is buried in the, in the corporate papers, but it's there. But they did form a, uh, uh, they incorporated, and they formed essentially to protect the core workers, nonviolent core workers, first in Jonesboro, and then they went on over, down and over to uh, Bocaluza. 
mm-hmm. uh, Louisiana. And there's lots of stories. I put some of them in the book. Um, yeah, no, no. Listen, I, so so I think that's really important. Again, back to the to the point of of organizing that they incorporated and that they yeah. that they had sort of ways to enter and you know yeah. and veterans and that that they were political. I think it's really it's really important, and I encourage people to pick the pick book up. And there's there, there, there's interesting like Martin Luther King's group, Tuscaloosa, Alabama was was another Ku Klux Klan town. Mm-hmm. Really, uh, Arthur and Lucy in the fifties had had tried had been accepted, but 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 had been the Klan. Yes, it wasn't going to have it. And it was a Ku Klux Klan uh, town. They uh, Black veterans, again, Korean War and World War II, but formed a group in Tuscaloosa to uh, to protect Martin Luther King's organization. When they began working and protesting in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, this group, unlike the Deacons, had no name, had no name whatsoever. And it was limited to 50 members who had to, one, demonstrate proficiency with rifles, <laughs> Two had to be Christians, uh, and three uh, non-drinkers because they felt that non-drinkers are a little, drinkers are a little unstable. And this group provided protection to SCLC as they were the SCLC people. I couldn't get anybody to talk to me about this, right. <laughs> this group, but they exist. And this professor at at the University of Alabama, which is which is in um, Tuscaloosa, wrote a paper about them. Who, mm-hmm. which is how I came on the well, Who are these people? I never heard of these. They had no, but they refused to name the group. They were semi-secret. Although everybody in town, I mean, it's not like Tuscaloosa is New York City. <laughs> right, right. Everybody in town knew this group was, and they protected and. And I don't know that this true is true for the deacons, but in Tuscaloosa, they protected white liberals as well, mm-hmm. who were advocating human rights and voting rights for black people. I mean, yeah. they followed them around covertly to make sure nothing happened to them. <laughs> well, I want I'm going to come back to just the. Uh, uh, a group of people that I think are heroes, are, or at least their stories are not told. And I'll, I want to come back to it. I'll hold, hold myself accountable. But you were talking about education. We know a lot about the voters registration sort of product projects and, and activity around that. Just in the interest of time, I'm, I'm going to touch briefly on the Atlantic City. But before I get to, to any of that, I, I do want to ask about the Freedom Schools and Freedom Summer. Well, you know, the Freedom Schools grew out of have two things, I guess. I may be wrong, maybe it's three, but two come to mind as I remember conceptualizing it. One was a very practical question. The, the Freedom Schools emerged out of the thinking and planning for the 1964 Mississippi Freedom Summer. You're going to have upwards of a thousand students, mostly who are white, coming to Mississippi. So the obvious question is, well, what are we going to do with them? They don't know the state. 
It's not like they can blend into the black community or, or find, you know, uh, uh, sanctuary in white communities. So what are we going to do with them? And, and the answer, when I wrote the original proposal for it, came to my mind for reasons I don't know, but it seems obvious in retrospect. They're coming from some of the finest schools in the United States. So why not use their education to teach in black communities? I mean, we had had a number of conversations about schools, uh, but had never found a way to address this issue. I mean, you know, how do you tackle the problem of schools where, you know, where you where you're let out of school shuts down in black communities up in the Delta so you can go out into the field, plant cotton, turn soil, weed as the cotton grows up. So we had never found a way to tackle it. Part of that was a manpower problem. We never had the people to do that. And now with all these students coming down, it seemed obvious that we should use them to, to teach not just uh, reading, writing, and arithmetic, all of which schools were deficient in, but also to see if we could begin to address this whole question of history and black consciousness and black awareness, you know, see if we could do that. And so we decided to just construct these communities. And, and secondly, it was safer than having white people bring black people down to the county courthouse to try and register to vote. I mean, nobody much wanted the idea of having to write some parent that their son or daughter got killed at some courthouse, uh, county courthouse. And, and it was because the schools obviously would be within the black communities. They'd be in churches uh, uh, or other structures or outdoors underneath a tree. And, so that's where that idea just as it was an experiment really intended for just the summer, although the ideas lasted much longer than that. Uh, but it, it was an experiment to see just for this summer, we had all of the student presence in the state concerned about civil rights to see if it was possible to begin to do that. We formed a committee of educators. Not people like myself. I was an organizer, but September Clark was on that community uh, committee. Miles Horton, who was the head of Highlander School, was on that committee. Uh, Norma Becker, who was uh, head of the New York United Federation of Teachers, uh, a bunch of people. And, and they were the ones who actually designed the curriculum. And we, made, we had already been in contact with them for lots of reasons. So they were familiar with us and they were familiar with the movement, although most of them lived in the South. Stoughton Lynn, however, taught at Spelman College and mm -hmm. he became the head of the Freedom School um, uh, group. And so that's where, and actually the, the idea is like voter registration. People saw right away that this was important. We didn't have to work hard mm -hmm. to attract interest and support and we wound up with double the number that we anticipated for the free and what was most interesting in terms of how the freedom schools are because we our view of the freedom schools was was that they should be for young people meaning elementary middle school and high school students 
And what we also had, which we did not anticipate, was a large participation of grown-ups, mm-hmm. adults, <laughs> coming to the Freedom School. You know, like the people I was staying with, they couldn't read or write. So they wanted to come to the Freedom School to, to learn. We, we did not anticipate that. <laughs> And also it had a, it had a tremendous, in some ways it's the thing with the possible exception of the MFDP that I would, uh, Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party. It's the thing people remember most. I still hear from one or two freedom school. <laughs> this is people who are freedom school students. Well, so, so I will say a couple of things is back to where you started at black people organizing is the idea of of literacy and learning and gaining knowledge, one of the things that we see is that people, again, resisting and risking their lives even during a period of bondage to learn how to read. But certainly right after, at the beginning of Reconstruction, and whether I read Du Bois or any other, any um, Eric Fauner or people who've written about Reconstruction, the idea of schooling and education and going to churches and let's bring in teachers or what have you was real in, in the black colleges, right? I mean, my, my all go out of that. Yeah. Alcorn's eighteen seventy one. My wife is Hampton. I'm, I'm, if I say the wrong year, she's going to kill me. I think they're eighteen sixty eight. <laughs> but but anyway, <laughs> uh, but they are all everything. You, you just see, you know, sort of that period of. Uh, of bondage, and one of the first things that people want is to learn to read and, and to and to to better. But remember, themselves. even before then, enslaved Africans mm. were holding secret schools. I'm thinking of yeah. Mary McPeak, and and uh, and and these are the real roots of Hampton. I mean, I mean she taught the, the tree is still there on campus. She taught yeah, emancipation. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> You know, secret. These are still slavery times. You know, uh, Frederick Douglass was secretly taught, yes, to to read and write. So this has always been powerful in some ways. What we were organizing in 1964, Mississippi, was just a continuation of this piece of the organizing tradition, and and it was enthusiastically embraced. Uh, by the black community. Yeah. And um, the the thing that I see and noticed in just sort of the preparing for these episodes is, is that the Black Panthers through their community schools, the open yes, community yeah. schools would have you pick up on that. And um, Fred Hampton on the West Side was talk emphasizing that revolution and not having the people with education is no good. And so that idea of freedom is really uh, yeah. uh, learning is is essential to to freedom, Mister Cop. What does the term "black power" mean? Well, it depends on how you look at it. It's mostly associated with Stokely. Stokely yes. shout out that the press picked up on and and projected, but really the idea itself has deep roots in the black community. If you think about it, I mean, why guys like Amzi Moore or or, or Aaron Henry and, and all of them, or Megger, who, who, you know, were movement leaders in Mississippi. And again, I'm talking that I, I, this could be repeated in other states. I just know Mississippi the best. 
they, what they were always about was black power. And if you talk to those guys, that's why they weren't interested in the sit-ins. They didn't see that that led anywhere. So, okay, so now you can have a hamburger or something. They weren't interested in it. They wanted black power. And they talked to us about black power. What does that mean? It means having a government that you at least influence, that looks after your needs, mm-hmm. that, uh, and that's what they saw as necessary. And the way they saw it as necessary, uh, uh, getting it was through the vote. I mean, you know, you li- if you lived in the Delta, you're living in the territory with 13, 14 counties uh, that are two-thirds or more black. And, I mean, Sunflower County where I lived, Rouville, I mean, it was 70% black and maybe a couple hundred black people <laughs> actually registered to vote. They had gotten registered in the 1950s before we got there. So black power, that sense of black power, being able to influence and not control levers of government, industry, of education, has always been what's driven the idea of black power. And, and, and that's Stokely. Uh, uh, Stokely, when he shouted out black power, he had, been, he had just been released from jail in Greenwood, Mississippi, because they had been doing something in some park, and police decided it was illegal. And Stokely got out in time for this rally, and he said something like, you know, I I was just arrested today, and it's the 27th time or something. I've been arrested. I'm tired of getting arrested. What we really need is some black power. And then Willie Ricks jumped on the stage. He was another SNCC musician. Yeah, black power. And then led the crowd <laughs> in this chant of black power. But really, the idea, even Stokely's remarks, although it was distorted by the media, Stokely's shout out of black power was really the idea of having control over your lives and over the decision making that affects uh, your life. And, and uh, I still think that's necessary uh, today. We see here in Florida. <laughs> yeah, we see it well, we see it across the nation. And let me say this, and I, because I want to be very careful because I'm not critical of the people in the organization at all. But I, I think that the phrase that we have now of Black Lives Just Mattering is a step down from Black power in terms of really having agency and control of what have. And, and and again, I am not criticizing the organizers, founders of people of the Black Lives Matter movement or organization, but the term, because words matter. Well, I like the term. I'll tell you why. If you look at the term, and I've had conversation with Alicia Garza, one of the people okay. who generated the, this term. Black Lives Matter grows out of very specific something. It was a little right. different than than the call for black That's power uh, that Stokely made, which was broad and 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 the, and the sense of what was needed. Black Lives Matter when when Patrice Colors and 
Alicia Garza and then uh, shouted it out was a specific reaction to the uh, acquittal of George Zimmerman for the murder yes. of Trayvon Martin and the outrage that flowed out of that murder. And, and the point they were trying to make is you can't sh- shoot somebody down like this kid was shot down as if it's nothing. Black lives matter. And that's, that's where, and I think that's a legitimate expression of, of outrage. And it, as it happened, and you never can predict this, it led to a movement uh, that was unanticipated, I think. Uh, people picked up on because some of the people shouting out Black Lives Matter weren't necessarily in the organization that, that uh, Alicia and them formed. Yes, and that's and that's why I was really careful to say that I'm, I'm not talking about the origin of the term or what have you, but I just is just how do we speak about these things anyway? So um, I have just in reading your book and just recently looking at a documentary in Lowndes about Lowndes County uh-huh. uh, and the Lowndes County Freedom Organization. So you mentioned Amzie Moore. Uh, yeah. I'm looking at other names. Ida Mae Holland. Ida Mae Holland, yeah, Greenwood, Mississippi. And I you know, here's the, the thing that I get is is in our telling of sort of the freedom movement and civil rights movement is somehow we've left out how important in the bravery and and the activity of the people living in the Delta and living in Southwest Mississippi and living in other places, just unnamed people were, that we sort of leave them out of the, the story. I think your book does an excellent job of, of widening the aperture or the lens to, to, to make sure we include them. Um, do we speak enough about the, the day-to-day sort of organizing and what it took? No, not at all. It's, just, it's one of the real weaknesses both within the black community and in the country in general. Civil rights has almost been re- completely reduced, and I use the word reduced deliberately, to me to mean mass protests in public spaces led by charismatic leaders. You know, as, as Julian said, you know, Rosa sat down, Martin stood up, then the, White folks saw the light and saved the day. No, oh, and that may be true. That may be just the nature of history. I don't, I don't know. We, uh, when I say we, I mean uh, SNCC veterans. We a decade ago formed an organization, the SNCC Legacy Project, to begin to address this issue and and need. And and you can see uh, to go to www.snickdigital.org, you can see our work and a lot of the names that have been forgotten appear on that site as profiles and the like. And more recently, we've begun discussions with uh, today's young activists, Movement for Black Lives activists, about uh, them now as opposed to waiting until they're old like we are. beginning to, uh, you know, really document their history and portray what they remember 
uh, of their struggle. Because we say, we tell them all the time, and we're getting ready to have a big meeting with them at the beginning of March. We tell them all the time, uh, you know, if you don't do it, somebody's going to do it. And if you're not doing it, you won't like <laughs> what they do. So get distorted. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, so you need to get on it now. Not that you're going to stop other people doing it, but you ought to have your story in your words and your tones out there yep. for people to to look at and understand. And we do that. We try and do that. And that was one of the other lessons of, of uh, Miss Baker. And I think our quote are in the book talking about history somewhere in the book. And I remember the last line is something like, it's not just, it's not it's, you have to do more than remember history. You have to understand history. Amen. Is, is what she says. And she's speaking to us mm-hmm. about the importance of history. And we repeat that message to today's young activists. You know, you have to, yes, remember history, but also understand it. And you can't understand the history of a movement whether you're talking about Mississippi specifically or the Black Belt broadly, without the people who actually made the history. You won't understand what happened in Mississippi without understanding Janie Brewer in Tallahatchie County, E.W. Steptoe down in Amit County, C.C. Bryan in Macomb. I mean, there are a lot of, you need a Black Belt. There are a lot of that, that... I consider part of my history because these are the people who took me in when I was 19, 20 years old. Um, yeah. yeah. And, and, and uh, I think it was, it's, it's just as important for, for the young activists today. To- uh, I, I definitely do because I think that there, um, that things are certainly get distorted. And, and I, I think that the anti black opposition to any black progress, whether it's in reconstruction or whether it's the term black power or whether it's, you know, black lives matter, we'll always find a way to be twisted and turned yeah. around. And I think that the the whole idea of the incompetence of the South Carolina legislator and leg, legislation group yeah. in reconstruction uh of them being incompetent and corrupt is is a is a is a miss on us in yes. history. Even in Mississippi, John R. Lynch. I mean, there's there's so many people who were just brilliant people, brilliant leaders that get left out of things. Yes. Uh, um, I heard speaking of SNCC, the SNCC uh, Legacy Project and SNCC Digital. I want to say that it was an interview. I don't know if I heard it or saw it of Cleveland Sellers, and I remember, but it stuck out to me. It stuck out to me and him talking about after he's leaving SNCC and returning into sort of what I would call civilian life and uh-huh. just, the, <laughs> just the difficulty in getting a job or renting an apartment because of, you know, his FBI file and police mm-hmm. file and what have you. Is that a common story? Of I don't York? think so. I mean, I, I, I don't think so, at least above the Mason and Dixon line. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, in some ways, back in those days, my experience was the opposite. In fact, you know, at the time of 
because of all the urban rioting uh, and and returning Vietnam War veterans, a school that is now the University of the District of Columbia, but then was called Federal City College, was established by the Congress. Mm-hmm. And the idea was to, 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 to have, a, which I think is still fundamentally a good idea, was to have, make available to, to uh, people who wouldn't get into school higher education opportunity. They set up the school. Then they got worried because they weren't sure who would be able to talk to these guys uh, and girls, uh, Vietnam War veterans, uh, people being released from jail, uh, people who who had been rioting on the streets of Washington, D.C. And the tuition was really cheap. Tuition was $35 a semester. So they asked the SNCC people. (laughs) Okay. They said the SNCC people know how to talk to these people. They hired a whole bunch of us uh, to teach. Uh, So that was my experience. Uh, Okay. Well, that's... I'm not. I'm not. I'm not a college graduate, but mm-hmm. I taught at Federal City College. I taught for several years at Brown University. Yeah. Uh, so and I think ultimately Cleve wound up teaching at uh, the University of South Carolina, and then he became the president of Claflin College uh, uh, in his hometown, out from his hometown. And so I. I don't know. It'd be interesting to to see to what extent because. What you're weighing is, on one hand, you have the SNCC experience, yeah. which a lot of people consider valuable. Uh, on yeah. the other hand, you have, you know, your fears of these people, <laughs> radical <Yeah>. people, <laughs> extremists, yeah. they get in jail. <laughs> they then, yeah. On the other hand, you have it. So which, which I don't know in, in, in the final analysis is my answer to your question. It was not my well, answer. I think Brown University and the University of D.C. thinks is valuable, and, and we think it's valuable. A uh, couple of couple of things really quickly as we wrap up. Uh, you talked about being reporting for National Geographic, and um, you were the founder of the National uh, Association of Black Journalists. Um, you did reporting in Africa. Is that correct? Yeah, I did. I, I... <laughs> The two pieces of my reporting, three pieces, really, there's the National Geographic stuff I did. Mm-hmm. There's the NPR stuff I did because for three years I was a, a correspondent for NPR. And then I helped found the news service, which now is the largest uh, Internet news service on Africa called allafrica.com. And it's a news service. It's not a place... It's for news. This is what's happening in Nigeria. This is what's happening there. So uh, Africa is threaded through my uh, reporting life. I mean, I didn't only do Africa for the geographic. I didn't only do Africa for NPR. I did. I was a diplomatic correspondent for AllAfrica.com, which which was a Washington-based job, you know, catching up with the various diplomats who, who from Africa who came to the U.S. and keeping my eye out and interviewing 
people in the U.S. government who were involved with Africa policy making. But, and it grew out of my political interests in Africa. Sure. A lot of SNCC people are politically interested in Africa, and I was one of them. And uh, so my increasingly my reporting drifted <laughs> into African uh, affairs. Well, we want to thank you for, for that, too, because I think it's really important. And now as we sort of come to, to a close, there's a couple of two questions that we close with. One, um, what does it mean to live well? Well, what I tell people, if I get that question, every now and then it comes up. I think to do that, you have to be true to the best in yourself. It's as simple as that. All right. I said, hey, I I like that, and simple is better. A uh, lot of a lot of wisdom in that. I appreciate it. And then, lastly, we would end up with something light. And so, so you are nineteen with in nineteen sixty two, and you're coming into the Delta, and you're coming from DC and from mm-hmm. Howard, and into the Delta. What was the music like amongst the the SNCC people? I, I listen. I know it's a lot of work. It don't get me wrong. But what what music were you all? What music moved you? Well, during- we were we were we were probably if you, we were listening to rhythm and blues. Yeah. Uh, to a certain extent, blues, mm-hmm. uh, because you know uh, there's there's a point where where classic blues and rhythm and blues kind of interact and intersect with one another. I'm thinking of uh, uh, of people like Chuck Berry. I'm thinking of people uh, like uh, Little Milton, uh, and, and and these, and there were these because remember you still have essentially the Chitlin circuit. There, there are people coming through. You can catch a lot of live music either locally in the juke joints, or they would have these shows uh, coming through. So that's one stream of music, R and B certainly, and then. Uh, st- still within the, the sphere of our, we're listening to Motown. Yeah, right. Yeah. We're we're listening to to all of that uh, yeah. uh, going on. Not blues artists necessarily, because I wouldn't yeah. call uh, Smokey Robinson or somebody right. like that uh, or a blues artist. But there's this other more, and it's interesting because among that group, you also begin. To hear from them, music tinged with the spirit of the Southern freedom struggle. This is Marvin Gaye's "What's Going On" and, mm-hmm. and uh, that album. This is uh, Stevie Wonder to to uh, yeah. a certain extent. There were a number of the, and we're listening to them, you yeah. know, and dancing to them. We have to say, I mean, you yeah. know, after all, we're all between what eighteen young people. <laughs> yeah, young people, uh, you know. But I'm first introduced to blues uh, in Mississippi at a juke joint. Uh, you know, uh, before that, you know, blues was uh, old people's music. Old uh, people, right, right. Say, right. Say, <laughs> you know, my baby left me and all that kind yeah, of stuff. Yeah, yeah. Really, yeah. that in then there's a deeper level of what they call deep blues, which, which is really, and I wrote an article about it for National Geographic many years ago. Okay. Uh, I have to about, look that up. About, 
or out of the blue. I think it wasn't what they were expecting. I think they were expecting some uh, romanticized uh, uh, notion of the of the blues, and, and instead it was a story about escape and, <laughs> and yeah and whatnot. And that begins for me in in. Uh, I mean, I remember in, in Indianola, Mississippi, where I was telling you about earlier, that was a BB King like to hang out. King, oh yeah, BB King. Yeah, he had a bar. He had a bar. He could be found at at the at the bar with his crown royal. And <laughs> hey, listen, to, hey, listen. That that sounds like a, that yeah, sounds like muddy waters came out of rolling fork, and, and yeah. these people were a part. In addition to their stature as performers, they were also part of the everyday life. I mean, I didn't. I discovered this unexpectedly in some ways. Uh, I didn't realize at the time. Uh, we lived, when I worked in Ruleville, Ruleville is right next door to the, a very large plant, uh, plantation called the Dockery Plantation. Mm-hmm. And the Dockery Plantation is sometimes it's sometimes speculated that the Doc that the Dockery Plantation was where the blues was born, mm-hmm. and then in town in Ruleville, a place we used to drink at, uh, Max Colored Cafe was where performers off the Dockery Plantation came oh, to really? play. And, and one day I saw all these white people, and they were all there was a whole group of people from the Smithsonian. Documenting mm-hmm. the blues at the Dockery Plantation, but they never interacted with us. We're right. there, and yeah. they're there. Uh, and I think we first noticed them because, well, what are the white people doing in Max Colored Cafe? <laughs> they, they're yeah. checking out the blues. They're checking yeah. out the wellspring of American music. That's what they're doing. Yeah. So the music, music. I mean. You you could see it best at at SNCC conferences. We had a, a two annual conferences a year, and a lot of those conferences after the sun went down featured drinking and partying and dancing and <laughs> listening yeah. to what you would expect twenty uh, uh, somethings, you That's know, in yeah. teenagers, particularly if they're coming out of stressful situations. Hey, listen, in 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 in. Again, I encourage everyone to first off just check out the um, snickdigital.org. Is it is it right? I want to say is it yeah, snickdigital.org, and you find lots of materials there. Uh, again, Mr. Cobb's book, uh, this nonviolent stuff will get you killed. Read that one. I, I think there's some. I will say that for me, even reading Taylor Branch's trilogy. He spent a lot of time uh, with SNCC. I mean, it says during the King years, and so you think it's a Dr. Dr. King sort of biography or, or what have you, but no, mm-hmm. it, it goes into a lot of detail. So I think there's so much to know. Yeah, and I don't I think say, Taylor expected to do that when he started his well, book project. Listen, he, emptied, he emptied it all out, so it's a whole lot there. But I, but I have to say this, and I am so embarrassed that I was in D.C., a couple of years ago, uh, when my daughter was a uh, um, still a student at Howard, she graduated mm-hmm. since. As I was going to meet her, I was waiting for her to get out of class, but I stopped at the African American Civil War Museum. 
Uh huh. Frank Smith's place. Yeah, and 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 so I'm there, and it, it, it was not a lot of people there, and um, I turn around, and the founder of the Whitney Plantation in Louisiana, John Calhoun, is there, and so mm-hmm. I'm sitting there fanning out, and just like, oh, thank you, Miss, and and right next to him is Frank Smith, who's his, is his music museum and he's the director he founded the museum he founded the museum and and listen i'm going somewhere with this and I'm, this is why i want to thank you for your time i am sitting there with frank smith and i don't have make not making the connections between snick and all of those things and i missed <laughs> out on an opportunity he gave me his card and his number what have you and we, going to reach out to him hopefully yeah. to have him on to talk about yeah you life. should you should really talk yeah. about that which is expanding i forget i don't know when the actual opening of the expanded museum is going to be but it's expanding yeah no it's a great museum and uh listen there are so many names and just things for us to understand but i want to thank you for your time here it's been really important and this is for listeners of our show uh, we're doing this episode, and then we're going to follow this up with an episode on uh, the life of Margaret Walker, who's a professor and poet at Jackson State. And then we'll have back-to-back episodes on the shootings that happened at uh, Jackson State in 1970. People talk about Kent State a lot, uh, but not enough about Orangeburg or Jackson State or even Southern University for for. Yeah. For that matter. But Mr. Cobb, I really want to thank you so much for the time you've spent with us. I want to thank you. I enjoyed it. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for your service. We're going to sign off. The Parlay in All Blue is produced by Raina Booth Podcast Productions. Music is provided by DJ Marky G. You can support us at buymeacoffee.com backslash Parlay in All Blue. Remember to like the show, leave a review, and share it. It helps to keep our work going and helps others to find us. If you have questions, comments, or show ideas, please email us at mark at theparlayandallblue.com. Finally, remember to follow us on social media. And thanks, be well, and we out.